0: What is up, everyone? I am glad you are here with us for episode 200 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. This is Rafael Garcia here with Sean Humes. This is the first time we've ever been on video in probably like the four or five years we've been doing this show. Schwan, man, say hello to everybody. How you doing? Doing all right. I'm just living in the wild, wild west out here. Half people got masks on, half
1: them don't. They're just doing whatever they want in
0: Texas. So everything's wide open. Um, are you going to get the vaccine at all or no? Uh, I'm, I'm supposed
1: to, but I think they're going through like a scheduling. So I don't know how, how close I am to that list. I think right now they're still doing older people. So I'm towards the end of it.
0: I just got my first vaccine appointment for this Friday. And I'm telling you, I cannot wait until I get that second one in me, because I'm going to be in the streets. So sure. I'm going to be, have bail money ready. I'm going to have to call you to come get me out of these streets because it's going to be out of control.
1: I'll make sure to have some money put aside for that.
0: Good stuff. Good man. See, that's how we do here over on MMA Ratings. And we're going to be talking about a couple of different things today. Obviously, we're going to be talking about this weekend's fights. We're going to be covering a little bit of 1FC as well. That's on Wednesday and talking about some other fights that have been announced in the last couple of days. And we will be celebrating our 200th episode at the end of the show But before we do that, as always, I want to take some time to thank everyone who's listened to this podcast from episode one all the way to episode 200, and you can always find our content across multiple channels going to MMA Ratings Net, first and foremost, where you can catch us there, and hit up MMA Ratings Net on Instagram and Twitter for all of our social media content. You can find this podcast on YouTube at MMA Ratings, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Anchor as well. Myself, you can catch me at underscore sports. Schwan Humes is there at Black Jordan Breen. And you can always check us out because we're talking about everything just from, not just mixed martial arts, which we will, we will be covering tonight. So, Schwan, let's go ahead and jump into it because I want to start with this Saturday's card first where we got a big change in the main event where Marvin Vittori is finding himself facing a new opponent in Kevin Holland. So, originally, this was supposed to be Darren Till. And Till broke his collarbone, I believe, last week. And there wasn't a replacement scheduled. But Holland stepped in on short notice. I think he's going to be taking this fight on about nine days total. So, Schwan, what do you think about this fight? And the big question that I had was, does Holland's performance against uh, Derek Brunson two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, whenever that was, make this fight less interesting? Um.
1: First, first of all, I think it's a better fight. Um, I know Darren Till's considered more of a, a striker, or a world-class striker. I'm not sure I agree with that anymore. But Till is fairly one-dimensional in what he does. One-dimensional in his striking approach, fairly one-dimensional in his skill set. He doesn't really show a high level of grappling or wrestling, not offensively, maybe defensively, not offensively. So this is a better matchup. It's a, it's a better athlete. It's a guy who, even though he doesn't have really a defined skill set, can strike a little bit, can wrestle, can grapple. He's kind of been able to show himself as a threat in all three ranges, whereas Darren Till has really only been a threat in one. So I think on paper, it's a better matchup just based on the skill set. Um, as far as as far as far Holland's last fight against Brunson, I don't think that tells us as much because Vittori is a big guy. He's a strong physical dude, but he's not really an overwhelming athlete. He's not really a guy who can like just take you down at will and control you. And most of the guys he's taken down and controlled and kind of roughed up, they've been average to maybe a little bit above average athletes. It hasn't been anybody really spectacular. I mean, he took Israel to sign you down once or twice, but he didn't really do any damage. He didn't really control him. He didn't really submit him. He didn't do anything of that stuff. Really couldn't dictate pace to him. And against the other guys he faced, they were kind of second, third-ish tier tier-type fighters. Um, so against Brunson, Brunson's one of the better athletes in the division. He's one of the more experienced fighters. Even though I don't think he has great IQ, the fact of the matter is he's very experienced. He's only lost to the best. He's one of the better athletes. He's a guy who can fight for control. When he's smart, he fights for control, tries to control pace and exchanges, and can just dictate things. I don't think Vittori can do that. So what Brunson was able to do, Vittori's more better all around, but he's not going to take Holland down and just control him. He's not going to put him up against the cage and control him for five rounds. He's not going to take him down the ground and control him for five rounds. He's going to have a lot more trouble getting into those positions than Brunson did. Um, Vittori's not as big a hitter. He's not as good a wrestler. He's not as good an athlete. So I fully expect it to be kind of a back and forth fight. That fight against Brunson, I don't think really has any impact on the fight against Vittori. In fact, this should be an easier fight for Holland based on experience and and resume, I think.
0: So something that stood out to me from his last performance with Brunson, and a lot of people were talking about his pensions to be talking during the fight and it didn't look good on him as he's clearly losing the fight, that he's joking around and it didn't seem like he had an onus on him to do something to change the situation. If he finds himself in that same position on Saturday where he's down, clear on the cards, four rounds to nine, five rounds to none, and he behaves in the same manner, do you think that that will badly damage his position in the eyes of Dana White or matchmakers across the UFC?
1: I don't think it matters. The fact, that the the point is, he draws attention. There's people who are big fans of his. There's people who are hate him and think he's he's not school well schooled enough. He's not professional enough. And there's you know there's the classical technician kind of analysts who are like he's not a very good fighter technically. So he he's polarizing. He's getting a rise out of people. He was talking and he wasn't winning, but people were tweeting about him talking not winning. So he gets attention, he draws eyes, he draws interest. It doesn't matter if Dana likes him or not. If he draws eyes and draws interest, then Dana is going to continue to employ him and give him opportunities. Plus, he's willing to fight anybody. He's willing to jump in at short notice. There's other middleweights right now who will win over Tory would pretty much guarantee them title fights. And they're not taking it. Uriah Hall, even if he has a fight ready, he could take it. Um, Derek Brunson, he just came off a win. Why not get another one? So Kevin Holland really has the most to lose because he was on a loop winning streak. He lost it in dominant fashion. And now he's taking on another guy who's got four or five fights and wins in a row. He beats Vittori. He's right back in the he's right back up to the rankings in contention again. So he's taking a risk, because if he loses, he's he's all the way at the back of the line. If he wins, he's right back close to the beginning of the line. So I don't I don't think it really matters. I mean as much as the only thing that exposed is that his skill his team, in my opinion, hasn't developed him correctly because he didn't have any technical answers to get out of those positions, nor did he have technical setups. Or counters on the feet to keep to avoid those positions. So all he's doing is talking, trying to get you agitated, trying to get you to maybe go for a finish so he can escape out the side. He didn't have an actual answer, so the only thing he could do was talk and look cool. And while it's it's unimpressive that he didn't have any answers, he couldn't improve his position. The fact of the matter is, Derek Brunson was controlling him for large parts of the fight and really couldn't put any damage on him. Not really, and he couldn't submit him either. So is it impressive? No, but. The fact of the matter is he still was able to go five rounds in the worst possible positions pretty much the majority of the fight. And Derek Brunson still couldn't finish him. So that says something about him still.
0: So what? So I'm going to disagree you there a little bit because I think that if Kevin Holland's performance turns people off and causes less people to want to watch him, that's going to have a long-term impact on his um, standing in the UFC. For me, for example— The minute that Till fell out of the fight and people started bringing up Kevin Holland as a potential replacement, based on how he performed against Derek Brunson, that didn't make the fight any more interesting to me. The only reason why I'm watching it is because I have to work the fight this weekend, so I will be covering it. But outside of that, I would have no interest in this card. Well, not the entire card, but especially this main event. And the main event sets the tone. The whole entire showcase. So, if he continues to have the same struggles that he's having, where he people are looking at him like he's a joke, I wonder if it's going to cause issues with his long term value within the UFC as a draw.
1: I, I would agree. I, I see that, but I can't. There's maybe three guys in the division who can do that to him. I don't think Vittori's the athlete. Vittori is a better striker. He strikes in three levels. He puts pressure on you. He aggressively counters. He'll throw, he'll get momentum and throw volume. He's a more exciting fighter, but physically he's limited. He doesn't crush anybody with one shot. He can't, he's defensively, he's a liability. And I don't know that he necessarily, he takes the greatest shot. He's durable, but he's easy easy to mark up and beat up. So to me, even though Holland lacks an overall skill set, like a sharp skill set, I don't think Vittori is going to just take him down left and right. I don't think Vittori can just hold him down left and right. And he might be a better technical striker than Holland. But Holland's better athlete. He's a little bit more aggressive and explosive in spots. I figure it's going to be 50-50 on the feet for the most part. Um, to me, this fight is more exciting because Holland's in it because Holland is generally an exciting fighter. Um, Vitori's kind of a paint-by-the-numbers, meat-and-potatoes guy. Darren Till's been exposed as a fraud and, and not as nearly as good as he's, his, 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 his looks and his charisma make him out to be. Now I think it's an exciting fight. It's an interesting fight. To me, it, it has more ebbs and flows. Because you have two guys who are generally in fairly exciting, high-contact fights who have a- enough skills in multiple areas where they can challenge each other repeatedly. So to me, it's a better fight. I don't think very much of Darren Till as a fighter right now, outside of his chin and his physicality. And um, Vittori, as consistent as he's been, he hasn't really beaten anybody who's really elite in the truest sense. And I don't really think he's beaten any really good athletes either. So this is an in- it's interesting because I want to see how he faces against a really good athlete. Last time we faced him, he looked kind of good, but he lost. This will be the second-best athlete, maybe the best athlete he's faced after Adesanya. Let's see if he's shored up some of those holes so that when he's facing a guy who's got some power and got some explosiveness, he isn't getting chipped up on the way in and on the way out. To me, it's a more interesting matchup now.
0: So the last thing before we move on to some of the other fights on this card is, if Tori wins, do you see him getting a, a title shot? If not him, who else is there really left at 185? Because if you look at the rankings right now, I'm actually pulling it back up, he is sitting, I believe, at five. Um, he's sitting at six. Darren Till is five. So, if he picks up a win here, do you think he is the number one contender? Or do they go back to Derek Brunson?
1: Uh, he'll probably call for a title fight. I would think Brunson's wins carry a little bit more weight, and or maybe they might have him fight Brunson to a uh, challenge for the title because Robert Whitaker is going to fight Kelvin Gastelum. Who, if they win that, whoever wins that fight is going to end up having to fight out of Sonia So somebody's going to have to have at least one fight in between. So most likely it will probably be Vittori versus Brunson or maybe uh, Vittori versus Hall, I guess, possibly. That's why I was saying one of those guys should have taken this fight because they beat him. Well, now there's nobody else ahead of you. You beat the number five guy, you beat another reigns guy. If Brunson beats him, Brunson's right there. Hall beats him, Paul's right there. Holland beats him, he'll be in the discussion, but he won't be considered a legitimate title contender, not right now. So I think, I think whoever wins this fight is going to have to have at least one more fight. At least.
0: So I am looking forward to the co main event probably more than anything else, where we have Arnold Allen and Sadiq Youssef fighting at 145 pounds. And these two guys coming into this fight have a combined, I think it's a nine fight win Well, nine fight, one, two, three, four, five. I think it's a like 10 fight in the UFC win streak, 11. 12, I'm sorry, 12. They want to combine 12 straight fights in the UFC. And this is a big fight at 145. I don't think any man is really kind of ranked that highly. And we know that the rankings don't really mean too much. They're 10 and 11 right now. But I think this is an p- important fight for both men because it sets the tone for the rest of the year and 2022 if they can find themselves in a title-eliminated position. What are your thoughts on this co-main event? Uh,
1: the base is really it's a prospect fight. I'm not always a big fan of these fights because one of these guys is going to have a loss, and most likely it's going to be a fairly impactful one because neither guy is highly ranked. So you lose when you're around 10 or 11, that's a big drop. And second of all, most neither one of these guys, for the most part, has faced a guy of a comparable level of athleticism and skill. Maybe they had a guy who's got some skills, some experience, some athleticism, but rarely have they faced a guy who's really got all three put together. So it's like, this will be, this is like the litmus test. Like, how good are you really? Because now you're facing a guy who's pretty much on your level, and the other guys have been maybe a step below, half a step below, and now you're facing the guy of your level. So we're really going to see. If a guy has shown skill, how much skill does he have? He's shown poise. It's easy to be poised when you're faster, you hit harder, you got a better chance. It's easy to be technical when you can physically dictate where the fight happens. It's um, easy to be Strategical when you're just so much faster that you can maintain your calm because you see everything coming you can outspeed them these guys are pretty much pretty much offset each other physically in one form or fashion so now it's going to be to me a matter who can really bite down and push through unless somebody just gets blown out immediately it's going to come down to who makes the least amount of mistakes and who can handle the pressure of not having those um, easy entries or easy exits or easy escapes or easy um, setups that they're used to having because they've been pretty much have been like a step and a half better than most of the guys they face. They, their wins have been fairly dominant. So now we're going to have to see what happens when you don't have a huge advantage athletically, technically, and strategically. Like maybe usually they're two or three steps ahead of somebody. Well, now you're probably going to be at the same level, maybe a step ahead. And when that gap closes, a lot of guys aren't the same fighter. So this is really going to determine who they really are and and how we can really look at them as far as being potential contenders moving forward.
0: Because it doesn't get any easier
1: from here. Like after them, this, there's a huge jump up from nine, eight, seven. So this is kind of the gatekeeping fight between two guys who are prospects. Neither one's a gatekeeper, but since the division is such in flux and so competitive, these two prospects are going to be gatekeepers for one another.
0: Let's fast let's fast forward to the end of 2022, and are we in a situation where either one of these two men are fighting for a, a title? Not necessarily champions, but at least in the title picture, fighting for the belt.
1: Uh, I'd have to see at least two more wins from them in the pins. It really depends on how this fight goes. I mean, if, you, if, if I'm, one of these guys wins, but I see, and I'm their team, and I see egregious holes, then I need time to really tighten that up. Because if you fight a lot, it's like sparring a lot of grappling a lot. You don't get better. You get better at the things you're already good at. You get more familiar. You get more cage time, mass time, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, but you don't get better because you're constantly fighting. You're sharper, but you're not any better. So if one of these guys shows egregious holes or takes a huge amount of punishment, which means there is an egregious hole in their skill set, you've got to go back to the drawing board. You've got to shore that up because a guy who was 10th or 11th exposed that hole and was able to punish it, which means a guy at nine, eight, seven, six, or 5 is going to run through that hole and destroy you. So you've got to eliminate that or you've got to minimize that. It just depends how the fight goes. If it's a dominant win, maybe those guys get that two or three fights they need to, to move forward. If it's a very competitive win, then whoever wins, I think you need to go back to the drawing board and make sure everything is as tight as it possibly be because the margin of error against the higher ring guys won't be there. But then again, you know, guys at the UFC are, you know, somebody could fall out of a fight. Hey, number 10, you want to fight for the title? Sure. They go take a career all ring beating and then never the same after that. But I-, I would really like them to be more methodical so that you can make the most of the opportunity when it comes.
0: Good stuff. It's it's funny you mentioned career altering because I was talking on Twitter this past week, and somebody brought up the fight that almost happened between Max Holloway and Khabib Nurmagomedov, and we're almost lucky that that fight didn't occur, because I wonder what Max Holloway would have looked like after the fact. I don't think he would have beaten. I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have won that fight, and I wonder what he would have looked like after facing what we know of as, as the best lightweight to ever compete. Yeah.
1: I mean, nobody thinks that so. there was there. They're always the coachings always talk talk from a position of strength. And I get that you're supposed to encourage your athlete. You're supposed to support your athlete. Same in any sport. But you can't lie to them. You have to make them aware of the risk or you have to be aware of the risk. And these fighters, these coaches in MMA, same thing with the coaches in boxing. They're braver than the fighter is. They'll let the fighter go through all his punishment because they don't want to lose. Drop two slots. I don't want to go from number five to number seven. And not knowing that by letting them go through this beating, you are essentially letting the world-class athleticism or elite-class talent they have get beaten out of them. And once that starts going one direction, it never stops going. It, you, you can slow it down by developing your skills, your conditioning, um, your strategy. But you, once you start going the other direction, you never stop. You don't go back. You just slow the decline. And um, a fight like that against Khabib, knowing who maxes as the fighter, um, that's going to be a long, punishing fight. He's not going to give up. He's probably not going to tap. So he's probably going to end up getting hurt pretty badly.
0: Yeah, I can agree with that. There is anything else on this card on Saturday that stands out to you? For me, I want to see what uh, Nina Ansaroff looks like coming back into the cage. Uh, She's facing Mackenzie Dern after, I believe, two years off. Yeah. And um, she's had a child, her and Amanda Nunez welcomed their daughter into the world, I think, like in December of last year. But is there anything else that stands out to you for Saturday's card?
1: About that fight, just once again, to reiterate what I said last week, even though Nina Ansaroff hasn't fought in two years, if Mackenzie Dern beats her, that is Mackenzie Dern's best win in the entirety of her career as a UFC fighter. The most of the girls she's beaten have been, you know, maybe good fighters, but struggling. Random Marcos, uh, who else? Amanda Bobby Cooper. I mean, she's beat... Um, God, who's the girl Angela Hill fought recently? I can't remember her name, but... Uh, Another another fighter who's kind of a middling type fighter. She's beaten a lot of girls who she's athletically superior than and able to physically dominate with punching power, physical strength. And when she fought Amanda Rivas, she got exposed. I mean, we already knew she wasn't a very good technical fighter, but she really got exposed for all her limitations and how much she lends in her attributes. So it's funny that in fighting Nina Ansaroff, a girl who hasn't fought in two years, if she you can't you can't guarantee Darren will beat her, because Darren's improved a little bit, but if she beats her, that's her best win. and it's it's ridiculous to think that a girl's been out of the sport for two years, and if you beat her, that's the very best win of your career. It wouldn't be the best win for Ansaroff, but it'd be clearly the best win for Dern. Dern's the better athlete, probably the bigger hitter, um, but Ansaroff's just a much better technical fighter. The question is, does she still have that fire, and does she have how does she react when she, if Dern is able to impose her will and when Dern cracks her in her face or she puts her in a bad spot? If she's going to react like she normally did. It's fine. If she's a half step off or a little hesitant, um, I expect a pretty impressive Dern win, but um, it, all, it all depends on what Ansaroff has. But if you go by activity, I probably have to go by Dern just because it's hard to pick somebody who hasn't been in the cage taking live bullets for two years. Uh, the only other fight I was interested in was uh, Blanchfield versus uh, Dumont. Erin uh, Blanchfield's, I think she's how you say name. Erin Blanchfield's supposed to be a big prospect. I feel like this is a showcase fight for her. Uh, Dumont's not a bad fighter, but she did lose to Megan Anderson pretty dominantly, which makes you know that she's not top shelf. So I think they're just using this fight to build Blanche Aaron and give her a kind of launching pad into the UFC to see if she can build some momentum moving
0: forward. Good stuff there, sir, and I want to turn our attention to Wednesday, which is a card that a lot of people aren't really talking about, but we should be talking about, especially with this main event where we have Demetrius Johnson is looking to fight, um, is looking to take the flyweight title, the 1FC, 1 championship flyweight title off of Adriano Morales in the main event of TNT's first presentation of 1FC, and there's a couple of pieces about that that i want to talk about. But from a strictly fight standpoint, does seeing Demetrius Johnson in this main event interest you at all, Sean? Um, it, it's
1: always going to have some kind of interest, just in the fact that, I mean, even though he's never been a high-profile fighter in the truest sense, like the biggest draw or anything, the fact of the matter is for the majority of his career, he's been one of the better fighters in two divisions. And for the la- latter half of his career, he's pretty been pretty much been no worse than the number two-fighter, and even most people didn't think he lost to Henry Cejudo, so some people could say he's still the number one fighter. If he was in the UFC right now, would I take him over Al Jermaine Sterling? Yeah. Would I take him over um, Peter Yan? It was 50-50, but over the majority of people, even at Bantamweight, i still say Demetrius Johnson is a much better fighter, much better resume, much broader skill set, much more refined skill set. I can't name two fighters in the division below or the division he's at who are just better all-around technicians with a better sense of pacing and a better ability to control the pace and dictate where the fight takes place. So it's greatness. And um, people usually tune in to see greatness, even if it's not, maybe won't do a huge number, but there's going to be a certain amount of interest. There'll be a lot of fighters who will pay attention to this fight because for a period of time, he was the gold standard and everybody would see greatness. That's why you saw Roy Jones versus Mike Tyson. They're not great anymore. But maybe you're just hoping to see a brief glimpse of greatness. Uh, you see, um, when Jordan was with the Wizards, you know he's not the same Jordan. But maybe he'll have one of those 40-point nights, and you just want to see You want to see the old Mike back for a second. People pay to see greatness, and he's a great fighter. He's a great fighter. He'll go down as probably one of the top ten, if not top four, fighters in the in the world as far as um, skill set, um, accomplishment, consistency, and uh, physical ability.
0: So, he's 34 years old, and he's been openly talking about retirement as well. There was a piece that came out this week, I believe, with him talking about that. If if he wins this title on Wednesday, where does he sit on your GOAT list? For me, he's easily top five. I mean, maybe you put Jones, Fedor, GSP ahead of him. But outside of those three, he's easily top four or five for me.
1: Yeah, he'd have to be. Um, Just like I said, based off of... The variety of skills he's shown, his consistency as a fighter, the fact that he was number one and number two at two different weight classes, he's competed in two major organizations. If he wins the title, that means he's won a belt in two major organizations. Um, very few fighters have shown the range of skill and the depth of skill that he's shown. He doesn't have the names on his resume, you know. I mean, he's got Benavidez, he's got Cejudo. Who else does he got? He doesn't
0: really have a lot of he names. you like, have to go back to look at his whole... He has Damasio <laughs> Page, who was a strong um, name back then. He has Kid Yamamoto, Miguel Torres, Ian McCall, Joseph Benavidez. He has uh, Ali Bagotinov, who was a big name, who people thought he was going to be a champion before he started failing drug tests. You have Kyoji Horiguchi. He stopped Henry Cejudo, so... Well, I mean like he has got a lot of names, but one of the things that
1: separates Jones is Jones has a bunch of established Hall of Famers, Rashad Evans, Quinn Rampage Jackson, Shogun Rua like. Those three alone are better than almost everybody's career because they dominated multiple they dominated their weight classes. Like they were at one point the pound they were other pound for pound best type guys. Joseph Benavides has never been a top five pound for pound best guy. Um, at one point than Rule was. It showed at one point Quentin Rampage Jackson was considered one. And Jones has very dominant wins over both of them. Even Daniel Cormier at one point was considered a top five, top pound per pound guy. And Jones has got two victories over him. So it's not so much that Jones is a better fighter or he's shown that he's he's been able to maintain his peak as far as level of his performances, but he just has like you've got four Hall of Famers right there. Two guys who won multiple cha- who won championships in different divisions, different organizations. Who've been, who've been stopped by him on a routine basis. That's what separates him. Same thing with, with Fedor. fader has got a bunch of Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame guys on his list. Um, Demetri Johnson has a lot of really, really good guys, a couple of maybe Hall of Fame guys, but not, like, top five guys. I mean, Fedor's got wins over other, you know, most of the great heavyweights of his time. He's got wins over, you know, Frank Mir, even though it's faded, Frank Mir, Crow Cop, um, um, Minotoro, excuse me, um, yeah, Nogueira, Fabrizio Verdum, you know, he's just like, there's four of the best heavyweights of all time. Jones beat four of the best light heavyweights of all time. Um, I don't think, I think that's what will put him behind. But if you go just based on what you see in the actual skill set, he's probably number one. I mean, if you go by straight up skills, only Fedor shown better, but even Fedor kind of threw his skills away to be more of a puncher. But if you go by just pure skills and controlling fights and fighting different styles, um, it's, it's Mighty Mouse going away. Nobody else has shown the range and the depth of skills he's shown. But we're, they're not going to go by that. He'll probably be, like you said, four or five.
0: So we're also talking about some of the other greatest fighters of all time. And Eddie Alvarez is also fighting, former UFC um, champion, former Bellator champion as well. He's not fighting for the title, but he's facing uh, a top contender in the co-main event. the pieces, if I'm saying that wrong, I apologize. Where does Eddie sit on your list of top lightweights of all time? I've seen a lot of different debates about where he fits in. For me, I could see him sitting in at, around in the top five uh, position as well, maybe top three to four, definitely top five. But where does he sit for you?
1: The biggest thing with Eddie Alvarez has been how many organizations he's fought at, fought in and how many world-class guys he's faced. That's the thing that really separates him the length of his career and the, and the fact that he's managed to stay mostly in a world class level um, as a fighter—I mean, it's—it's it's very hard to, uh, I like his loss against his loss to um, McGregor was—it was—it's pretty bad to be quite honest. He—he he just got crushed. He didn't—he wasn't competitive. He couldn't—he couldn't touch McGregor. And this was Eddie Alvarez coming off of one of the very best wins of his career. And he got dominated. I mean, it wasn't... he just smoked him. And we can talk about wrong fighting style, wrong strategy. The fact is he couldn't do anything with Connor. Connor made it look easy. He fought Dustin Poirier. The first fight, it would be no contest. He probably would have won that if he wouldn't have fouled him. But the second fight, he got totally dominated once again. So um, he's had some pretty big losses, but mostly I would say... I don't know if I can give him top five. Maybe, maybe top seven. Top seven to ten is where I would give him. He's had some really impressive wins, but he's had some really really devastated devastating fairly one-sided losses to kind of make you wonder about it the biggest thing he has gone for him is he's fought all over the world pretty much he's fought everybody so it's hard to really it's hard to really um say he's not at least top seven but i just, I just feel there's some limitations in his game and I feel that he's had some losses that just really make it hard for me to say that this guy meets the bar of dominance I mean in the uFC where they have the best fighters. For Peter period of time, B.J. Penn dominated. Khabib Nurmagomedov dominated. Eddie Alvarez never really had that. He never is a champion. Is a champion when the stakes were the highest. He got blown out and blown out in a fairly one-sided fashion. That doesn't mean he's a terrible fighter, but you definitely can't put him at one, two, or three. I mean, I'd say even Frankie Eger had a better had a better run in one hundred and fifty-five than um than Eddie Alvarez. So that's one, two, or three. He's out. Who do you got four? Um,
0: I think it's, it's when you look at Alvarez's run, like you said, he's fought everywhere and he's fought a bunch of people. I mean, he's beat Justin Gaethje, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, former champion, title challenger. He beat RDA. Yeah. Former champion. Anthony Pettis. He and he fought in a he fought for a belt at welterweight as well. Anthony Pettis, former champion. Gilbert Melendez, former champion. He split with Michael Chandler, who's fighting for the belt. Former champion. He beat Shinya Aoki. He split with him as well too former champion, beat Pat Curran, another former champion. Um, I mean, he's beaten a lot of guys. Kawajiri, another former champion. He's beaten a lot of guys that it's almost as if you, if you were watching MMA in the early days, you would definitely see Alvarez as a, as a bigger name than if you were just watching since, like, 2010.
1: Yeah, his, his, long, his longevity is really what stands out because part of the reason he has all those wins is because he's been – Able to do it over basically two different decades of fighting. What's twenty? So, you know, twenty. Yeah, it's his longevity, and I'm not saying he hasn't been effective. It's just I don't know if I put him in that top three. I mean, it's really hard for me to put him in that top three. Like you get to you get to five to seven. I think we have a fair amount of discussion, but. um in that 1-3 through three position, I, I just can't do it. I can't put him over BJ Penn. I can't put him over Khabib Nurmagomedov. I can't really – I don't know that I can put him over Frankie Edgar just because Frankie Edgar was able to defend the title on multiple occasions. You know, um, I'd probably say he's better than Chandler. Justin Gaethje hasn't, hasn't really won a title in a major organization. Chandler has won, but they split their fight. So maybe you put him in four or five, something like that, between four and seven, but – um yeah, I, I still say he's between four and seven. The first three, uh, just off their runs in the UFC, I, before and after they won the title, I'd have to put them above him, in my opinion.
0: Good stuff, good stuff. Let me ask you this question, because what's interesting to me about this card on Wednesdays, as I said, it's the first time one championship will be on TNT, and it's coming on after Pro Wrestling. Uh, if you, I mean, if, if you or anyone that's watching doesn't follow, uh, there's a new wrestling promotion called All Elite Wrestling that has a show on Wednesdays from 8 to 10. That's been pretty been having pretty strong success so much so that the WWE actually moved their show on Wednesday to no longer compete with them so they had their they should be drawing in a good seven to nine hundred thousand viewers on Wednesdays pretty consistently now I w- I'm wondering I'm curious and interested to see how many people stick around to watch this fight on TNT afterwards because they've been showing promos leading into the last two weeks or so. And I'm sure that they'll have some during the show tomorrow night as well. Um, Siwon, do you think a lot of people will stick around or will the numbers drop off because it's a weekday?
1: I think that's the reason they're using Eddie Alvarez and Demetrius Johnson because they fairly recently fought in the UFC and they're recognizable names. I think Sage Norcutt's on that fight card too, right?
0: I think so. I'm are looking at. He's,
1: he's fighting. I thought out like UFC. he was
0: originally supposed to be, but he's not listed anymore. Okay, well, that's.
1: I think that's why they're using them because they're they're guys who are very well known. Partly due to the UFC, partly due to themselves, and they're trying to use that to leverage it a little bit to get more of a share of the people watching it. So. um I don't, I don't know what a acceptable number is. I don't know what's considered a big number. I just know that whatever they would have done without these guys wouldn't have been comparable or wouldn't have been anything of, of note. That's, that's why they're having these guys so high up on the card. Um, I think it'll be a good number. I think enough people will tune in. There's MMA fans, but I don't know that the UFC fans, the majority of them, were going to tune into it. Some of them will because they're familiar with Eddie Alvarez. They're familiar with Demetrius Johnson. I don't know that it'll be a majority because once again, any, anything outside of the UFC's realm or sphere seems to suffer a little bit as far as coverage and um, and overall numbers. You know, I'm hoping the wrestling. I'm I'm hoping for a good number because it's it's the best thing for the fighters moving forward. If there's some competition and they can make a, not just a living but have the support of the fans and other organizations, um, it's risky the day they're doing it on. But I mean. I guess at this point, you, you got to take the openings when you can. You can't go ahead to the head with the UFC because they usually beat you just off of name brand recognition alone.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to the most to see what that number looks like after Wednesday's um, pro wrestling. I, I think it'll be an interesting tell of, of what they will be doing going forward because they have some U.S. names that they can maybe book around. Gary Tunin, um, Tom DeBlast is still on the roster. Uh, like you said, Sage is still there as well. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't if they go after Page or something like that. So they have some names around that could probably make it work. Um, there were some pretty interesting fight announcements this week that we're going to touch on quickly. Um, Angela Hill and Amanda Hebas. I think this is a this is a, an intriguing fight. I'm looking at Hebas to get the win initially, even though everyone knows Angela Hill is my homie. Like love that love that fighter, but I'm more concerned about. If he'll be able to keep the fight on the feet for three rounds, fifteen minutes, because the second it goes to the ground, she's going to be in a lot of trouble with um, he boss on top of her.
1: Yeah, I mean, he got knocked out pretty, pretty spectacularly, but recently Angela Hill's been fighting more controlled, and she really has is, is dominant. She looks against um, Ashley Yoder in some other fights. She doesn't look just just dynamic as a striker, as as punishing as. as as a striker as you would expect her to be, given how good an athlete she is. So um, it really comes down to how Heavis has recovered from that knockout. If she's 100% good, her confidence is good, um, her mind's good, it's going to be hard for me to imagine that Angela Hill beats her because, like you said, Hill's not great on the ground. And even if Hill survives, once Hill Hill's biggest wins have come when she's had a physical advantage of some sort over somebody. Against Heavis, I don't know that she's stronger than her, I don't know that she hits a lot harder than her. I don't know that her hands are faster than her. I know she's not as good a wrestler. I know she's not as good a grappler. But athletically, she can't control where the fight takes place like she usually does. She can't just throw you off on a sprawl. She can't just shove your head down and and pull her leg out. She can't just reverse herself or muzzle herself in and out of positions. And is as young as she is, still fights with a fairly seasoned approach to it. So it really seems like it's a showcase fight for her against a girl who has a hard time finishing and a hard time against women with balanced skill sets. I mean, it's, it's really, he fight to, to lose. Um, but having been stopped before it gives Angela, it, it's going to, it's going to create interest in that fight. Cause they're going to be like, has she recovered from the knockout? If she's recovered from it, it'll be a competitive fight, but it's going to be a clear win for he if she hasn't, then he'll have the biggest win of her career. But this is a pretty, pretty, Pretty important fight for Hill. Hill needs to win this kind of fight. She rarely does. She rarely wins these kind of fights, and that's that's the unfortunate part about this.
0: Very true. Very true. We also have Korean Zombie versus Dan Ige. This is the fight that most everyone is excited about. Let me uh, ask you, Sean. Is is this is this Ige's, um? Will this be his statement victory? Or uh, will a Korean Zombie remain as one of those top contenders?
1: I don't. I mean, Korean Zombie for the most part has only lost to really good fighters really good athlete. Dan Nige to me isn't a really good athlete. He's not a particularly skillful fighter. Like he's, he can grapple a little bit. He can strike a little bit. He's more of a, he's tough. He's durable. He forces the pace. He's, he's He can touch on different ranges. I don't know what he does where he dominates. Is he a dominant wrestler? I don't think so. Dominant striker? Not really. Dominant grappler? haven't really seen that either. He's kind of, like, pretty good in multiple ranges, but he's very aggressive. He's very tough, and he's willing to force a pace and force exchanges, whether it's on the feet, on the ground, or wrestling exchanges. Um, I don't know where he beats a Korean zombie at. Even though Korean zombie had that loss against um, Yair Rodriguez, he would have won that fight in, like, three more seconds. That fight was one for him. That was, like, I don't want to say a fluke because Yair did a real technique, but that's as fluky a win as you're going to get. And even losing against Brian Ortega, Brian Ortega is one of the better athletes in the division. And Brian Taker is one of the more durable fighters. And Brian Taker, nobody knew what to expect from him. He hadn't been in the cage in like two years. He came back a brand new guy. If Korean Zombie loses to Ige, we can pretty much start talking, stop talking about him as an elite competitor and start talking about him as a journeyman. Because um, I, I have a lot of respect for Ige. I just don't think Ige is particularly great. Calvin Cater took him apart. And Calvin Cater is not a great fighter, technically, either. Not even as a striker. He's overrated as a boxer and a striker. But um, he, took, he took EA apart fairly convincingly. So if Korean Zombie can't beat him and beat him in fairly dominant fashion, then um, he's got another problem. He's probably officially a journeyman, and it's going to be just be, being a stepping stone for contenders or temperature or mark, to see if the contenders are ready to make the next step. But I'd, I'd favor um, Korean Zombie. Better fighter, better athlete, more experience, better results against better opposition.
0: And then the last one is the Chris cyborg list. lisa, lisa. Leslie Smith rematched. And as you know, they fought once in the UFC. That was Chris Cyborg's introduction to the octagon. So they're fighting again, and they're fighting at Bellator 259 for that title. Do you see this fight going any differently?
1: I mean, it should go a little bit differently, just because um, Leslie Smith should have an idea of the strength and the physicality of Cyborg. Also, Cyborg's not the same. Cyborg's lost a step, maybe lost two steps which doesn't impact her as much because she was like three or four steps ahead of people. So even if she's lost two steps, it means she's two steps ahead of people instead of four. Uh, Smith's got really good conditioning. She fights at a very high rate. She's using more of a a balanced striking skill set. But the fact of the matter is defensively, she's not great. She does not hit very hard. And even though Cyborg isn't an explosive, snappy kind of puncher, she's a clubbing, like physically move you around and control you and break you down puncher. And I don't know that Smith can handle that. Smith's biggest thing is getting her volume, getting her momentum. I don't even know how she gets past Cyborg's jab if Cyborg uses it. Cyborg's jab and low kicks alone should pretty much make this fight as easy as she wants it to be. The only difference is, unlike the other girls who kind of concede and cover up and back off, you're going to have to punish Smith. You're going to have to break her down. You're probably probably going to have to stop her to get her to stop fighting you. Whereas the other girls, once Cyborg started putting shots together and physically dominating them, I don't want to say they quit. That's very insulting. But they didn't really have any answers and when they didn't have technical answers they're not the type of fighter just to put their head down and just swing back leslie smith if nothing else will fight back so if cyborg win if cyborg should win she's a better technician as far as i've seen more experience better competition bigger stronger better athlete she loses to leslie smith and um, that's that's probably no offense against Smith. that's probably the worst loss of her career to be quite honest
0: You're mute. Take it off yet? Yep, I figured I, I was doing well so far, but I mean, you say it's, it's Cyborg's worst loss. She's only lost twice. Um, once to Nunez and in her very first fight, like her literal very first fight, is the only other fight she ever lost. So I mean, yeah, you could oh. really-
1: Only because at that point, Nunez was the best bantamweight and still one of the best athletes and biggest hitters. And at one point, basically, he was number two in women's fighting behind Cyborg. Leslie Smith isn't in anybody's top five pound for pound for women. I don't know if she's top five and she'd be top five bantamweight in the UFC champ, in the UFC. So I'm not saying she's not tough. I'm not saying she's not dangerous. But there's a difference between – there's a different caliber of fighters, and the UFC still has a better caliber of fighters and women's fighters than, than Bellator. And Leslie Smith wouldn't be a top five bantamweight. She'd probably be like top seven. But she wouldn't be a top five well what does she do she she strikes she throws volume she can grapple a little bit not a great wrestler not a knockout puncher so what if she knocks cyborg out that's telling you Cyborg's shin is no longer there that's not a good sign because that's a lot of her thing when well, she takes her down out wrestles her tanya avenger couldn't do it but now leslie smith does that means cyborgs decline to the point where she can't even defend takedowns and out wrestle someone who's smaller and weaker than her and not probably not as good a wrestler um it's just a, it's just a fight where she has all the advantages so even though Leslie Smith is the kind of fighter who can make it tough, she's not the kind of fighter you lose to. She just makes it tougher than it has to be. You take a couple licks you shouldn't. You have to fight a little bit harder. You might have to work a little bit harder. But um, she shouldn't beat her. This is this would be a fairly tough fight because she's tough. Not technically tough, but physically tough. Not a not a truly competitive fight.
0: So, yeah, I'm always interested in – just because, you know, the bigger her platform gets, the more she can speak out in support of, of fighters. So it should be an, an interesting contest when we get around there. Schwan, we're going to turn to boxing for a little bit. We don't have much for boxing to talk about because there isn't anything really exciting maybe until May 8th where Alvarez and Billy Joe Saunders fight. But and you, you, I know you're excited about Jake Paul and Ben Askren next week. But what are some of the things that you're looking forward to when it comes to uh, the square circle? Uh, well, Jam- Jamal Herring, he beat um,
1: Peter Frampton. This, this week, Frampton is pretty much done. He That
0: uppercut he was died. nice. I, I like that, yes. that, that sneaky uppercut that he caught him with, because it looked like somebody was demonstrating how to throw a proper uppercut. And it almost doesn't even seem like it hits, but it was a, such a clean knockdown.
1: Yeah, Herring's, Herring's got a great story as a Marine, and the issues he had with his children. and. He's a good guy. He's he's a he's a solid fighter. He's good technically. Seems very disciplined. I don't know that he's the greatest athlete. I don't even know that he's the greatest fighter. He's a very good, very well prepared, always in condition, always ready to go. Seems very mentally strong. I don't know that he has necessarily the talent of an Oscar Valdez. I don't know if he has the talent of a Shakira Stevenson or, or guys of that nature. But he's always well prepared. He's always in well he's well conditioned. He's he's well schooled. Um, so I guess maybe the next fight would possibly be him versus Shakira Stevenson. Uh, him versus Oscar Valdez could be a possibility, and I'd be excited to see either one of those fights. I'd rather see Stevenson or Valdez fight one another, but I would settle for seeing I would settle for seeing Herring um, fight either or either either one of those guys. He probably fight Oscar Valdez for a title unification belt, and whoever wins that would probably fight Shakira Stevenson in theory. Um, mm-hmm. Outside of that, um, of course, there's a Jake Paul Ben Nasker fight. I really think a lot of people are sleeping on Ben Askren. I like Jay Paul. He can fight. He seems like a guy. He's a very good marketer. He's making money for other fighters by putting him on his card. He's a great eye for business. But the fact of the matter is I've seen multiple fights of his, and when he's swinging, he falls into clinches really well because he, he mistimes the distance and is either short or long, and he gets into clinches. If Ben Askren gets his hands on him in a clinch, Ben Askren is going to beat the hell out of him. Like Paul's very strong. He's very athletic, but he's beating up a YouTuber and a retired basketball player. He hasn't fought a legitimate fighter. And I know Ben, Affle- ben Askren is not a, it's not a boxer, but he's still a fighter. Jake Paul's not a fighter. He's been beating up on non-fighters. And I'm sure he beats up on guys in sparring, and that might be all well and good. But my question is, how do you look that good in sparring and then fight guys who were worse than your sparring partners and never look as dominant? He didn't, he didn't, look, he didn't look all – I don't know what everybody's talking about. It was a bad knockout against Nate Robinson. He didn't look great. Jake Paul did not look great, and Jake Paul did not look great against the first YouTube fighter he fought. So, is he athletic? Does he hit hard? Sure, but Ben Askren has been hit hard before. He's been kneeed, he's been kicked, he's been punched by Robbie Lawler. And if it gets into those clinches, if they go around and the ref lets him fight, and he can clinch and hit him to the body and just tie him up after that first round, I don't think Jake Paul will have anything left. If it goes, I don't know if he can go eight rounds. If he doesn't get the knockout in the first round or two, I don't think his power carries. I don't. I don't think he wins the fight. And and to be quite honest, there's no pressure on Ben Askren. He seems very level-headed. He doesn't seem egotistical about this at all. If he wins, he wins, he loses, he loses. He's kind of accepted it. Jake Paul's is the one who's been talking the stuff. And Jake Paul's is the one who's going to be facing the best opposition he's ever faced in his life. And, yeah, I know it's boxing, but Jake Paul's not a real boxer. No offense to him. He's beating up a YouTuber and a basketball player. Now, they were live fights, but... If you've done MMA, you've probably sparred boxing with people who are better than Nate Robinson and the YouTuber. I know I've I've sparred like Golden Glove winners and guys who've been nationally ranked in boxing. I've I've sparred better people than he's fought. Not saying that means I whoop his ass. I'm not saying that, but the level of opposition hasn't been particularly good. So I don't know what to take from it. You beat up Nate Robinson. Okay, well I let's say I submitted um Roger Federer. So now I'm gonna grapple Damian. I'm gonna fight Damian Maya. So I submitted Federer, so I should have him. I guess you know I uh, kickboxed who Phil Mickelson, and I knocked him out. So now I'm going to fight Damian Maya and I'm just going to light him up on the feet. It's not how it works. Even if you're better than the pro, the pro is a pro for a reason. There's kind of a gap between y'all. So that that's what I think about that.
0: We'll probably talk about this more next week because the fight is scheduled for next week, and it'll be in a, a, a runout item. But I'm just going to give you an early preview of my thoughts, I hope they both knock each other the fuck out at the same time. Period. Yeah. Like that's what that's what I want to see. Uh, if you can tell me, I will give them however much money that pay-per-view costs, if they could promise me that they'll knock each other the fuck out at the same time and then I can turn it off and go to bed a happy man. That's all I want. Hey I'm just I'm just happy
1: for I'm happy for people to have another avenue to get paid because any combat sport, any person who does it has my respect. It's hard to make money. If you can find a way to make some money illegally without causing anybody any problems, I'm all for it. Hey, do your thing. Uh, the one other thing I want to talk about as far as boxing was Adrian Broner. He seems to have drawn a line in the sand. He wants to fight in the next 10 to 12 weeks. And I don't know that they have any space for him to fight, especially against the caliber of guy he's going to be fighting on his way back. Because Adrian Broner demands a fairly high amount of money. He's supposed to be more of a, of a draw, but he wasn't in his recent fight. So do you want to pay him three, 2 to $5 million to fight somebody who's maybe an average level fighter. Um, you want to pay him that much to fight a name fighter. But right now, I don't know that he's ready for a name fighter. He needs more fights. But um, he, he seems to be drawing a line of sand where he wants to be active or he wants to be let go. And I don't know how honest he is about that. But like he said, I get in trouble when I'm not fighting routinely. And if he's not fighting for another, if he's not fighting 10 weeks from now, that's going to be like, what, almost three, four months where he hasn't been fighting? That's not good for a guy who tends to routinely get in trouble. So um, it's it's gonna be interesting to kind of watch that and see and see how that develops.
0: True, true. So I got a train passing by. So yeah, that'll be a, a frequent thing. But you talk about people making money. This week is WrestleMania week, and there's literally pro wrestling shuan from yesterday through next Wednesday. So it's going to be a long, arduous week with me and being belligerent and covering all the pro wrestling I could possibly cover. Have you ever watched a WrestleMania?
1: Oh, I've been to one. Uh, one in Houston. I went to when The Rock, I think it was The Rock and Stone Cold. Um, 17? I think, was it the one where Mr. McMahon turned on at the end? I think so, if I remember. It was it was years ago. My uh, An old friend of mine, his dad was uh, worked at this match store, and he got his tickets. And then he uh, got tickets for another one in Bad Blood in Houston. Um, I think Brock Lesnar got thrown out on the, on the floor in front of us, so we got to kick him a couple times. <laughs> so, um, but, and then um, it was funny. So, we got those because my friend was friends with a girl whose uncle was the Undertaker. And he got he got his front row tickets. Like, we were front row, front row, like right there on the floor in front of him. Like, everybody was walking past us and everything. It's pretty cool.
0: So, yeah, this is, you know, it's been a full year since they've had fans in attendance. And we're gonna we're not gonna talk too much about pro wrestling tonight, so bear with us. But this is their first event having fans back in a whole year. They're in Tampa. They're gonna have 25,000 for the show on Saturday, and 25,000 for the show on Sunday. Um, how soon do you think the UFC will do an event outside with the big, big crowd like that? Because they have that event coming up in Florida, I believe. With 15000 how far are we away from an outside UFC event with that, that large of a crowd?
1: Uh, we can't be that far from it. I mean, Dana's chomping at the bit. He wants it. I mean, some of these fights with, uh, that they had recently have done great one pay-per-view, and he's probably thinking about all the money he's lost out because he couldn't have people in attendance. I mean, the gate chief versus Ferguson fight, he lost a ton of money because people weren't there. Gaethje versus Khabib would have been a huge fight. Khabib versus Conor McGregor did not have a crowd, like a real crowd for that, like a real overpaying ESPN there. Like, it just, it's, it's hurting the bottom line and it's hurting kind of the impact because you see these fights and they don't carry as much weight when you don't have fans there. I know fighters like it because they can hear everything clearly, but, you know, there's a certain magic when you see a knockout of the year and the fans are seeing it too. It's like, it's just an energy that gets everybody swept up into it. It probably makes for... A worse product in certain aspects, but it makes it much better as far as the experience and uh, communicating that emotion when a fight happens. So you know he he's just he's already exploring every option. Fighters health be damned. He's gonna get these people in to watch these fights happen.
0: Yeah, I think it's gonna happen sooner rather than later. And um I just hope we stay safe. Like you can't trust it, but we gotta figure out a way to keep as many people uh safe.
1: Yeah, there's one thing I want to talk about before we go. I, I saw something on Twitter, and I don't know who posted it. I apologize for not remembering this. But somebody was talking about the Jones-Dana White issue. And they made a very good point. They said, 8 to 10 million to fight Francis Ngannou is actually too little for Jones. He, he, he's, he's in his right mind to want $25, $50 million. They said, that makes sense, considering the fact he's never lost, like really officially lost. He's one of the most dominant champions. He has a fan base. His pay-per-views sell very well. Every time you mention Jones on a website, it's 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 hits, it's clicks. But they said it's not that he's not worth it. It's just the risk that comes with John Jones because we've had to cancel events, we've had to move events from one arena to another arena, we've had multiple fights get canceled or pushed out about and as much money he's made the UFC, he's lost the UFC just as much money with his drug issue, with his issue outside the running into the phone pole with the issue with the pregnant woman. It's like he's cost him as much as he's made. So has he earned the right to make that money? Yes, but due to his lack of dependability or consistency, you can't invest that kind of money in because you don't know what the hell's gonna happen.
0: So I'm gonna say this, and John Nash, uh, I think he rushed a bloody elbow, I believe, but he is a very good resource for these type of conversations. Just because of the ESPN deal alone, USC made five, is going to make 500 million dollars this year, uh-huh. meaning. All of their shows are already paid for. All of the shows for the whole year are already paid for. That doesn't include any pay-per-view buys, any gates they'll be getting, any sponsorship money that they'll be getting. All of their events are already paid for. If you look at, if this show did a $750,000 uh, $750, pay-per-view buys, if they keep the price at $79 a pay-per-view buy, just back at the back of the mad, like back at the Nappen Mass, they would make about 60 million dollars off of that show from a pay-per-view standpoint, not including the live gate, not including sponsorships. So if we include those two numbers in, it could easily be 70, 75 million. So he could get eight, 10, 15 million. They could pay him that, and it would be perfectly fine. They would they would not have to bat an eye at that. The issue is they pay John Jones that, then you're gonna have a minute. Nunez asking for more, for more money. You have Connor asking for more money. Dustin. Every, and they don't want to have to deal with that. And I've, I mean, that's the situation well, that we're well, in. I always see those guys demanding more money, because the
1: man in the news could be like, I haven't cost you as much as this fool's cost you. Connor McGregor can say, if anything, I always show up. My knee was tore when I fought Chad Mendes. I wasn't 100% to fight. I shouldn't be fighting Could K- be right out of the gate, but y'all wanted me to, so I did it. This dude cost y'all money, tons of money in events. I'm not saying they don't have the money, but their thing is to make as much money as they can on top of the guaranteed money. And with Jones, you just never know what's going to happen. You you honestly don't what if he beats Engano and then he he pisses hot? Oh my god, dude.
0: I mean, Connor almost ruined a whole a whole event when he threw a dolly through a window and yeah. injured three people. And then
1: they turned and then they turned that into a marketing point
0: and made so all they their Whatever they want to do, and like they, they could easily pay John Jones his money. Um
1: I think they should pay him. It's just When somebody made that point, I said, "I can respect." It's like paying a a football player who's always getting trouble, misses a bunch of games. Yeah, his talent says he's worth 25 million, but damn, dude, he misses. He only plays seven games out of the season, and he's always in trouble. Like, I can't give 25 million to someone who's so unreliable. And Jones's unreliability is not an excuse, but that's a point that Jones haters and people on the side of the UFC are going to point to. Hey, look, he's not dependable. They've been. They maybe if he showed up for all his fights, and not all these issues, maybe they'd give him his money. They, we we both know they
0: wouldn't, but they have a legitimate argument now that they can point to. In my opinion, so something that somebody can't argue about though, Sean, is the longevity of this show, man. We're at we are at two hundred episodes, and I was trying to look back through the records today, and I couldn't even find where it started. The last, the most recent video, or the earliest video on our YouTube channel is like episode 162. And that was back in 2019. So we've been doing this for at least going on four to five years now. And um, I first and foremost want to thank everybody who's taking the time to watch this show. We have about 350 subscribers to this channel. Some of our shows get 50 views. Some of our shows get 25. We have some on this channel that have 500, 1,000. We have one that has almost 15,000 for some odd reason. But anyone who's taking the time to Click on our content and watch one of our, our shows, whether it be this or the or wrestling podcast that we do or the interview series that we do. I want to first and foremost say thank you for that. Um, Sharon, what are some of your favorite memories or highlights from doing the show?
1: Um, favorite memories and highlights? I'd probably say uh, one of them would have been um, having the one we've had guests on, like, a, you know, I enjoy the. When I talked to, we had Trevor Whitman on, and I was joking about how uh, me and him, me and Pat Barry had beef, and he was just laughing about that. That that was just kind of fun seeing another side of him. Uh, Talking to Arlene Sanchez was big because it's giving a female coach, which there are very few of in the mixed martial arts, and she was a world class coach, hadn't directed two world champions. That was a very big thing to me. and then I can't remember all the shows, but shows where we picked upsets, like Eddie Alvarez with RDA or Misha Tate over Holly Holm, like fights nobody else saw coming and or Rousey, uh, Holly Holm over Rousey, like fights that people were just totally against, you know, like y'all are idiots. What are you talking about? You don't know nothing. And then like, you know, some of the biggest upsets of that year or in the past couple years, we call them on our show. You know, the decline of Luke Rockhold and Chris Weidman, people were calling us idiots for months and years because I kept saying it. And then both of them fell off, and then it's like people are just like, now when I say some crazy people, like, they they still disagree, but they disagree with some respect, because they they know I call all these upsets. They know we call the upsets. And it's fun when I can go after the thing and be like, if you would listen to MMN ratings, you would have known that Rose Namunas was going to knock out Joanna Gingerich, or you would have known that Eddie Alvarez was going to stop RDA, or you would have known that because we said that. We said that like six days before.
0: Yeah, it's great. I wish I could go back to the fine episodes where we where I talked about Amanda Nunez and Holly Holm being able to beat um, uh, Ronda Rousey because I've had multiple people apologize to me for that just because the fact that we we pointed it out long before it actually happened. So that is that is something that I can honestly say that I really enjoy. We've been doing this show for so long and I think there's a the longevity of it that you brought to the table as well has been fantastic because if it was just me i'm not sure how much longer i would have been doing it but um we've had roy roy um across the pond phillington B- who is a great grappling editor i think he does a, i think he's a grappling editor for bloody elbow now he was a co-host with me for a, a while we had um mike did a couple episodes the original website um, owner he did a few episodes as well too but you've been here side by side with me for a long time so i want to say you're appreciated sir and let's, let's, let's,
1: let's knock out 200 more. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you. Like I said, you you all offered me the chance to be on the forum and kind of get to uh, you know speak freely. I've been on other shows, and because they have certain ties, I have to watch what I say. And I come over here, and I can essentially say whatever I want. If I get too crazy, then you're like, I get a text on my phone like, oh, OK, yeah, that guy is a really good fighter. I didn't mean any of that. So um, it, it's really cool that I get to have a forum, and like I said, I consider you and Mike really good friends. I have probably stayed in touch with you two more than I stayed in touch with people I know the majority of my life. So it's like having two more friends and, uh, you know, I just like knowing what's going on with you guys, you know, made me feel like, like part of the family. And as far as the show, one last thing I wanted to say is whenever we've had, like, knowledgeable people on here, uh, Steve Kim, Trevor Whitman, Marcus Davis, Arlene Sanchez, Stephen Wright, like all the people who are coaches who really know what they're talking about or people who manage fighters, they've always complimented us on how prepared we are and how well we know the sport and how respectful we are and how knowledgeable we are about the workings of the sport. Like, that means a lot to me, because a lot of people do a lot of let's be funny and let's joke and let's stroke their egos. And we ask real questions and we make real points. You know, We don't agree with everything they do. Told Trevor Whitman I didn't agree with something he did with Rose, told Arlene Sanchez I didn't agree with something she did with Nico Montagna, but they didn't get bothered by it because we did it respectfully and we had done our research and we watched the fights And we could talk on that cerebral level with them. And that means a lot to me that they respect it and other uh, guys who really know the sport in MMA respect what we do and respect the show. Like a lot of guys, when I've been on other shows, they've always said they like what we do, the quality of the show we have. And that means a lot to me, you know.
0: Good stuff, man. I I definitely appreciate that, Schwan. And like I said, here's to um, 200 more. We're going to go ahead and close out and we'll be back here next week again, as usual. You can check me out at R-Garcia underscore sports, Siobhan Humes at Black, Jordan, Green, and look up MMA ratings anywhere and everywhere to find all of our content. A Shout out Adam Martin as well because he does a lot of work for the uh, the podcast as well or the, the site itself. We got to get him on the uh, show as well sometime in the future. But we'll be back next week, and everyone have a great weekend and stay safe.
1: Yes, everybody have a great evening.